purple. Get ready to roll indeed. Welcome back to College and Kimball. Getting ready to take a look at your 1-0 Kansas State Wildcats following the Cats 24-7 season opening victory over the Stanford Cardinal in the All-State Kickoff Classic. I am your host, Jeff Burkhardt, joined as always by Alex Speth, Clint Wilson, and Justin Nutter. Follow us on Twitter. If you haven't already, it's college underscore Kimball. Each of our individual handles are linked out on that page. We've got plenty of content coming at you in this particular episode. We're obviously going to spend a fair amount of time breaking down the Wildcats' decisive 24-7 victory over the Cardinal in Week 1. We do have an interview we're going to play back for you. I had a chance to catch up with Todd Hefferman of the Southern Illinoisan. He covers the Salukis, and he's going to offer some, some great insight, not just about SIU football, but also about how they fit into the Missouri Valley Football Conference title chase and whatnot. So some great Uh, pearls of wisdom from him and some great insight about the Wildcats upcoming opponent and we'll obviously look forward in making our own projections for the Cats week two game against the Salukis and then Clint will spend some time breaking down the fantasy recap of week one so plenty to get to uh, but let's start off with Kansas State's Big win over Stanford. Obviously, there was a lot of consternation about moving this game from Manhattan to Dallas. But at the end of the day, the Wildcats come out with the victory. That's obviously the most important element in all this. But I just wanted to ask you guys, how did you feel about that move after the game wrapped up on Saturday? You know, it looked great on TV. I unfortunately did did not get to go. I kind of regret that. Uh, sounded like everyone had a blast. I know the players absolutely loved it, made some money. You know, it's probably a good deal overall. I mean, I feel like when the deal was made, um, you know, you get a guaranteed payout. You still have seven home games. Yeah, it kind of sucks losing that home game against a Power 5 opponent. Um, in hindsight, if they knew that it was going to be an 11 o'clock kickoff, if they knew that you know, it was pretty much going to fly under the radar. You know, I think they thought it was going to be more of a marquee type game, uh, which it wasn't even, even on the Fox pregame. I never barely saw them mention our game at all. Um, I don't think that changes anything, but you know, they would probably have preferred it been, you know, a later kickoff on a, you know, not on FS one, but I think they made a good decision at first and they kind of got, you know, Every every bounce went the opposite way they wanted it to go after that decision was made, but I can't I can't fault them for making that decision. Yeah, the uh, the fact that we're coming off a year when you know the athletic department especially took a pretty major financial hit, I think it was kind of a no brainer to move this in a year where we would have had eight home games otherwise. I know there's definitely a very vocal camp uh, regarding you know the impact to the local economy in Manhattan and everything, but. I don't know. I, I that 2.8 million's pretty hard to turn down. Plus, we got a pretty solid win against a Power Five team out of it. Um, yeah, you know, it was technically a national audience, but at a crap time on a, you know, lackluster station. But at any rate, you know, making lemonades at making lemonade out of lemons, I guess. Yeah, and if we would have been playing, you know, maybe one of almost any other Power Five team, they probably would have brought you know 10, 15,000 fans. Um, so kind of just, like I said, uh, everything kind of went the opposite direction of what we really needed it to go to make it like a big, uh, 
non-conference marquee type game, but the players had fun and they were able to get some recruits to go to the game. Then, then I'm fine with it. I I'm one of those and I'm still trying to break myself of this so entrenched in the Snyder mindset of don't deviate from anything. Don't give up a home game ever. And, you know, I, I just any sort of non-con game with any kind of nuance to it, if we did anything, I just keep thinking back to what happened. You know, uh, we moved the North Dakota State game to a Friday night so we could get the primetime slot on the new network that is Fox Sports 1. We lost that game. We moved the Nebraska game to a Thursday night on ESPN. We moved the Auburn game to a Thursday night on ESPN. You know, and and, and granted, these, these happened several years ago, different coaching regime. And like I said, I, I just that mental block in my own head. I, I need to, <laughs> I need to get over that because this, the staff clearly has a, a much different way of approaching these games. And, and to that point, K-State threw a wrinkle out at Stanford, something that Scotty Hazleton didn't put on tape in 2019, not something that Klanderman put on tape in 2020, a three, three, five alignment. It really seemed to give Stanford a lot of fits. And when you have a guy like Timmy Horn kind of anchoring that in the middle, that's obviously a personnel piece that you really haven't had the luxury of having the previous couple of seasons. I I know historically we're so accustomed to the Bill Snyder methodology there of not wanting to put anything on film in, in the first couple of weeks. And, and we understand his philosophy he was very tight, very close to the vest on that. He wanted to gradually introduce more concepts as the season progressed and didn't want to give the opponent any kind of inkling of, a, of an alignment that they might see in, in a game, you know, from week one, looking ahead to week 10. I I came away thinking that's kind of refreshing that our coaches understand that this is, this is a P5 opponent. This is a game of magnitude and significance, and it's going to influence how the season goes. I don't have an issue throwing out a unique wrinkle like that in, in the season opener. If it means if this is something that's going to give you an edge, I say throw it out there and whatever happens down the road, whatever happens is whatever happens down the road. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm all for, you know, putting your best foot forward. I mean, we lost to Vanderbilt a few years ago in the non-conference. I won't ever take anything for granted ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my whole thing is, you know, we would get upset with Snyder, like holding things back or whatever. It's, you know, if this is what you got to do to be a successful football team, you do it to win the game you're playing. You don't need to worry about games down the road. Just win, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. I could not have said it better myself, Nutter, than the Wildcats did just that in week one, 24-7. Again, the final K-State winners over the Stanford Cardinal. And you guys mentioned it was a great experience for the players and crowd. You know, they showed guys that were in attendance there. John Lynch, Rondé Barber, Emmett Smith, Kurt Warner, a lot of NFL dignitaries in the house. Great to see all that. I'm sure some of those guys probably had a chance to interact with some of the players at some point uh, in the days leading up to the game. So one last thing I'll, I'll just mention as far as the, the neutral site openers. Uh, if you want to go back and do a little bit of history here, K-State opened up the 2000 season against the Iowa Hawkeyes at Arrowhead opened up the 2003 season against the Cal Golden Bears at Arrowhead. Now, I only bring those up to say that those Snyder led teams played at Arrowhead to begin the season. And they also 
wound up back at Arrowhead later on in the season for the Big 12 championship game. So if history tells us anything here, will the Wildcats end up back in Arlington for a Big 12 title game? We'll see. Uh, history is obviously in the Cats' favor here. So let's hope the trend obviously continues on that front. Now, time to dive into the game. And, and truthfully, this was a game where K-State vastly, vastly outclassed the Cardinal. 24-7 uh, to 7 really doesn't do the team justice. They, they really, and particularly defensively, just sat on Stanford all day long. Um, guys, what were your biggest takeaways on that front, just in terms of, of the performance that you saw on both sides of the ball. I love the way the defense played. I mean, the the guys are bigger, faster, stronger than we've seen in a while. And they're the most important thing is that there's depth. And the coaching staff has been rotating guys in and out since they've got here. But this is the first time where you can really tell, like, these backups can really play. And then uh, just seeing those guys throw up the lynch mob sign and just – you know, that just brought back so many great memories. And I love that this team is backing it up. It's only week one. I hope they can keep uh, doing what they're doing out there and keep throwing up the sign. Uh, we'll see. But for one week one, they look fantastic. Yeah, I'll just go go on that, you know, cautiously optimistic about the defense. I, I do realize that Stanford's offense maybe is not as explosive as offenses we're going to see. But even then, you know, every defense is going to give up yards. But, you know, it's it's really good to see the defense flying around, making tackles. Um, a lot of Stanford's uh, positive plays were, you know, a, a few completions and whatnot were still against really tight coverage. Uh, you know, just chalk that up to, to good plays by the offense. But, um, you know, the the defense definitely, with the depth, like Clint was saying, is is very encouraging to keep our defensive backs and our, our D line and our linebackers to an extent uh, fresh during some of the games where they're going to be seeing uh, maybe some more spread up tempo offenses. Uh, as far as offense, I think we saw some good things. Uh, I wish the offense was a little more consistent throughout the day for sure. But, you know, there was some glimpses, uh, maybe a little bit, bit of rust from some of the players, but I think we only ran, somewhere in the 40s of plays so it's almost like we didn't quite get to see a full game's worth of the offense um to see them kind of get in a rhythm but you know definitely a good showing on both sides of the ball yeah i uh i mean this can definitely be said for the whole team but especially on defense i just thought we looked notably faster than we did really at any point last year i don't know how many times by the time the ball carrier went down for Stanford, we had six guys on him. You know, I, obviously those swarm plays are definitely uh, what that that's that's kind of a quintessential thing that Kleiman wants. So to see that early and to see it often was super encouraging. You know, you had four sacks by four different guys, a couple picks by a couple guys. You know, really awesome pass breakup by a newcomer in Stubblefield. Damn near a pick six by Justin Gardner. Just couldn't quite secure it. You know, like. Guys contributing really at every level. You know, I know there was some concern about linebacker, but Green and Fletcher really both held their own. Um, you know, offensively, Deuce was Deuce. Skyler was, you know, hopefully just rusty in the passing game. Hopefully we can shore that up a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, overall, really, really pleased with what I saw top to bottom. And it's amazing that we're already saying Deuce was Deuce this early in his career. I That's mean, that right. This yeah. 11th career game. I mean, <laughs> if 
um, Irvin would have come out and done that. We'd be raving about what he did, but now it's already so standard to see him do these really special things. Yeah. I guess you could say he beat the sophomore slump. That's probably a better way to put it. Yeah. One thing about the defense is just like uh, probably kind of a given talking about the praise we're giving them, but I want to specifically mention, you know, a, a big flaw of the defense the last couple of years has been missed tackles and they were tackling very well in space, which was really good to see. I don't remember um, off the top of my head a lot of missed tackles. So, No, that was the thing that stood out to me more than anything else is that regardless of who was at quarterback, if it was Jack West or Tanner McKee, once the ball left his hands and if it was a completion – K-State's, you know, if it was Daniel Green, if it was Fletcher, if it was Brent, whoever it was, was there in position, made the stop, got the guy down. The only missed tackle that uh, Nutter spoke into existence came from Ross Elder. Now, granted, <laughs> he uh, defense is known where your help is, and he was out on an island. So, you know, in that sense, he, he, know, he, he didn't have the benefit of forcing his guy to the boundary. He knew that he was in a bad spot, so... But uh, honestly, beyond that, the defense was rock solid. And, and, and if you take out those two completions, those two nice um, just uh, back shoulder throws to, uh, Humph- uh, to John Humphreys, you hold them to 180 yards on 50 plays, 3.6 per play. That's exceptional. Just they, they were ter- tremendous on that front. I, I will say not to be the Debbie Downer here. I think the Stanford team is extraordinarily limited in what it can do offensively. That was the one big thing I looked at where they did not have a lot of game breakers, be it in the backfield and the passing game. Uh, again, Humphreys has great size at six, five, but I, I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to go out and break a game open. Uh, Stanford had some reliable guys at tight end, but no, there's no JJ or Sega white side. They don't have, uh, Zach Ertz, uh, you know, guys that have come through Stanford's program in the last couple of you know, years, those types of weapons aren't really in the fold for this team. So I, while I was very thrilled to see our defense do what it did, I, I think this is probably next to KU going to be one of the more limited offensive attacks that we'll see uh, this season. So not to be Debbie Downer, but I just want to say put put a little grain of salt on this. Uh, just be encouraged by what you saw. Hopefully our guys take it and build off of it. They've got, they're going to have a nice, nice test coming up here this Saturday against Southern Illinois. We'll dive into that here a little bit later on, but let's pivot. Now let's go back over and talk about offense. We spent a fair amount of time talking defense. Again, it's hard to single one guy out defensively because everybody looked just so sharp and, and tackling was great, but I want to move over to the offensive side. Deuce Vaughn clearly stood out, but uh, we, I think we do need to spend a little bit of time talking about Skylar Thompson. I, I came away a little bit discouraged after this performance, uh, only in the sense that he seemed a little gun shy after that opening interception. What say you guys? Yeah, he just seemed late on a lot of his throws. The one, uh, to Brooks, he pro- that went for a long gain. He probably could have hit a little earlier. Um, the one to a matter Bebe where he left short. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that was a matter of arm strength or if he just saw him late, so the the ball just didn't quite get there in time. Um, but 
you know, he he had a really nice run, touchdown run. We'll talk about that one later a little bit more. But uh, other than that, I was I was a little, like you said, discouraged with uh, his performance out there. Yeah, I feel like it was uh, honestly it was just kind of a uh, a complete Skylar Thompson type of game. You know, he's been known to have games where he plays really well, and other games where he just does not play so well. I feel like this was just kind of a a mashup of all of Skylar Thompson. Like he ran the ball really well, he made some nice throws, but he also bailed out of some clean pockets. He didn't see some reads. He looked like he did see some reads and still didn't pull the trigger on some throws and then pulled it down and ran. Um, I hope some of that is just a little bit of rust, you know, first game of the year. Uh, also just kind of feeling like we had the game, you know, in our in our pocket most of the game. You know, you don't want to take any risks. But um, <clears throat> there was several plays where uh, his first, you know, the, the, the long pass to Brooks, his first read looked like uh, a nice post route to Malik Knowles, uh, that a good throw probably scores a touchdown on. Definitely not a gimme throw by any means, and we'll take the result of the play for sure. But, you know, that's a throw you'd like to see him pull the trigger on his first read, um, especially when, you know, I feel like Skylar Thompson is a very, very good quarterback when his first read is open. Um, that's kind of been the knock on him in his career is when his first read's not open, he doesn't make his progressions and checks, you know, to to get to a second and third read. Um, and that's when kind of plays fall apart. But when when you see his first read looking like it should have been, you know, uh, should have at least attempted a throw there and he's still not throwing the ball. It's a little concerning. I think that first interception maybe gives him a little bit of pause going into those, um, you know, not trying to force it after that. But. Um, we'll kind of see how he rebounds this week. Yeah, the uh, I think the most concerning part of it, Alex, you just mentioned it was like it's not that he wasn't seeing the open guy; it's that he was and still wasn't pulling the trigger. I mean, you mentioned Knowles on the long play to Brooks, but then there was another play we talked about off air where Jack snuck by the linebacker out of the backfield and had nothing between him and the end zone, and to the point that I didn't notice it in real time, but Alex pointed it out. The announcer even said it in real time. You know, there it is. And by by that point, Skyler had abandoned the pocket, which was still relatively clean at that point. So I do hope that kind of shakes out to the fact that this was just his first real game action in, you know, 10 months, 11 months. So, uh, you know, time will tell, obviously. But, yeah, that's there's definitely cause for concern there. The one now, play other than his uh, touchdown run that I really liked was uh his uh, pl- pass to Matter Bebe, where he's scrambling out towards the sideline. Definitely. And yeah. uh, lets it go on the run, puts it in there perfectly. Matter Bebe made a great catch, but it was a very nice pass. Yeah. I mean, that's reminiscent to that uh, pass to Schoen against OU a couple of years ago. Very similar to that. I mean, that's, that's good Skyler, you know, going on a bootleg and throwing on the run. That's, you know, that's what Skyler does. I think he also excels in the the short to intermediate routes. That first throw of the game, uh, the out route to Brooks, was a beautiful throw, a, a good, beautiful design play. So if anything, you know, I would like us to see maybe getting the ball out of his hands quicker or moving him in the pocket um, and letting him do what he does best. But I feel like having him drop back and try to read, you know, deep routes is definitely probably not his strength. 
nine for 14 for 144 and a pick. And I'd be more inclined to give him a little bit of a break on the pick because Caillou Kelly was, he made a sensational catch on the sideline to, to pick that ball off for Stanford. But in the same breath, that's a six, one corner who's pretty well blanketed in Brooks and been on him the entire route. So that's probably a ball that Skyler should not have thrown. And again, when Phil Brooks has given up almost half a foot to a guy, it's tough for me to say that I can confidently believe that Brooks is going to be able to win on one-on-one battle. And Nutter, you said it. I think the best thing you could have hoped for in that scenario was Brooks gets a hand in to deflect the ball or knock it out of his hands, but not a good interception for Skyler. But nevertheless, uh, K-State didn't need to rely on him and the, the passing game as much. Uh, the O-line and the running game really do a tremendous job. And I think that's a good opportunity for us to segue into our awards. So what we're going to be doing here uh, each week is our distinctions are going to go out and we're going to obviously give these guys the appropriate uh, or give out awards named after certain uh, past players. And we're going to start off with the Michael Bishop Award. This is the team MVP for week one and guys hands down i think it's deuce vaughn and clint he really just went off picked up right where he left off racking up his third uh 100 uh, third straight 100 yard game going back to last season yeah and this award could easily go to quite a few defensive players this week but uh deuce really carried the offense behind that um pretty good uh performance by the offensive line uh you know just what, what was it, a third and 12 when he ripped off his 59-yard run? The guy just is someone that you can rely on at any any time in the game, any uh, time in the, the downs. Um, he, he's already become somebody that we're starting to take for granted just because of how good he is. Um, you know, I look for Deuce to probably win this award 10 more times this season. The guy, <laughs> he the was guy averaging just, exactly... Uh, 10 yards of carry until literally the last play of the game, which was a, you know, 21 dive on fourth and two literally to run out the clock. So yeah, that's, that, that's a hell of a day at the office. And honestly, if Texas's Bijan Robinson doesn't have his big breakout effort against Louisiana, Deuce Vaughn's a very strong candidate for big 12 offensive player of the week. Didn't really show out in the passing game the way that he did a lot of last season, but nevertheless, the Wildcats obviously, very effective running the ball in this contest. And I'm sure many of our listeners have heard and or seen the video of Deuce Vaughn talking about the look that Stanford gave on that long touchdown run with the safeties playing way back off and uh, great recognition again by not just by Skyler, by the coaches, everybody involved, obviously to, to see that on that third and 13 call and to go check to the draw in that, Again, Deuce Vaughn just has a gaping hole, only has to make one guy miss uh, before he's off to the races on that big 59-yard touchdown run. And that's a good opportunity to pivot and go to our Darren Sproles Award, who we're going to give to the offensive most valuable player of the week. And one of the reasons Deuce was obviously able to run so well was the offensive line. But we're going to single one guy out, and it's a guy that Chris Kleiman has heaped uh, an absurd amount of praise on not just in post game after Stanford, but also here in the midweek press conference leading up to the Southern Illinois contest. Josh Revis had arguably one of his best games as a Wildcat. Nutter, he was just sensational this past Saturday. 
Uh, Revis is a guy, I think we've all said it at some point, feels like he's been here about seven or eight years at this point. Um, you know, he's kind of been a stalwart, you know, kind of like a staple of that offensive line, but not a guy you really hear talked about all that much. Um, but, I mean, you really saw him making some some big plays, not just at the line, but sometimes 10, 15 yards downfield. You know, Skyler's first touchdown run, uh, Revis stood a guy up, you know, at about the five-yard line and had driven him about halfway into the end zone. Um, there was a, a jet sweep to Malik Knowles later in the game where you see Revis burying a guy 15, yard down, 15 yards downfield. You know, it was just that kind of day for him overall. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think probably the average fan, myself included, is very good at grading offensive linemen. You know, I don't, I don't personally know what to look for. But, I mean, it, it, he was pretty hard to ignore on Saturday for sure. No doubt about it. And honestly, beyond Christian Duffy missing a couple of assignments in the second half, the offensive line played collectively a terrific game. They really did a great job of neutralizing Thomas Booker. Again, that's Stanford's highest rated NFL draft prospect per pro football focus. He's on the lot watch list, the Nagurski watch list. Uh, he's going to be playing on Sundays where it gets taken next in next year's draft remains to be seen, obviously. But K-State did a wonderful job, and it wasn't as if the Wildcats were just running wide, trying to get outside the tackles. Granted, Messingham called some plays to get Malik out on the boundary on some sweeps, and Deuce Vaughn obviously can run outside. But the Wildcats were still able to run effectively in between the tackles. So, again, I I came away feeling very impressed. Even if you take out Deuce Vaughn's 59-yard touchdown run, K-State still averaged close to five yards per carry. It was 4.7 per pop without that 59-yarder. So again, a a workmanlike and solid effort from the starting five up front for Kansas State. But Revis really did shine through this past week on the offensive line. Now we'll move next to the defensive side of the ball, our Mark Simino Award, again, going to the most valuable defensive player of the week. We had a fair amount of debate on this before we ultimately came to our decision, guys. Uh, and really a, a spot that was very questionable going into the season opener, but we came away feeling very impressed after week one with the linebackers, and we ultimately decided to give the edge to Daniel Green. Right. This could have went to a number of guys on the defense uh, when the defense as a whole unit just you know, showed up and just had a great game. But I think uh, part of it is the question mark of linebacker. Um, they were seen as kind of the weak spot coming into this year on defense, but uh, Daniel Green as well as uh, Fletch, Cody Fletcher both played really well. But Daniel Green was just, you know, he seemed like he was all over the place. He's making solo tackles in space, and you know, just I don't know, just played played really well. Um, but yeah, the whole defense could probably get the award for this game, but Daniel Green. Yeah, just punishing hits, too. I mean, the, the guy has really good size compared to a lot of our other linebackers, but he's got the athleticism to go along with it. And that, I think he's going to uh, have a great year and might be looking at the NFL here in his future. Definitely looked more in the linebacker mold. Looked like he put on some good weight this offseason. Uh, and again, like you said, just a lot of forceful hits. Uh, and he was where, again, led the team in tackles, and right behind him was Cody Fletcher. So we, we talked about it in our preview, how how our linebackers might show out in that Stanford game just based off of the type of formation. They're throwing a lot of 
22 personnel at you. They're, they're going to be very conventional on how they attack you and your linebackers are going to be asked to step up big and Daniel green and Cody Fletcher both answered, answered the bell. Uh, but Daniel green, again, getting the nod here for the fir- uh, season's first Mark Semino award winner. Now we'll move over to special teams. This is pretty much a no brainer here. Tayton Winkle comes on as place kicker, uh, there, there was a pretty big question about this position, just not knowing. I, I know, I think I speak for every fan when, when you know you have a kicker coming back, you don't really think about it. But when you don't have a kicker coming back, you're really panicked. And and maybe some of that is again just what's been instilled in me after years of thinking back when oh we've got Jamie Ream and then we'll, after Jamie Ream leaves oh my god who the hell is going to be kicking for us and then same thing after Joe Ream leaves and, and whenever you're trying to fill that void uh, you, you really never know what you're going to get in the place kicking department until you actually see it with your own two eyes but Tate Winkle comes on three of three on his point afters nailed this 40 yard field goal attempt uh, looked like it would have cleared from about 50 just a perfect kick to split the uprights uh, just a no doubter in that. And that really was the play that kind of put the game effectively out of reach, made it three scores at 17 to nothing. Honestly, it didn't really feel like K-State needed a whole lot more outside of the 14-0 lead that it already had. But Tayton Winkle was terrific this past week. So he is our David Allen Award winner for our special teams player of the week. Now we'll pivot into our Arthur Brown Award winner. This is our newcomer of the uh, the week distinction. And Clint, I know we had a, again, there's so many candidates because K-State's plugging in a lot of new pieces, particularly on the defensive side, uh, but we ultimately uh, landed on Russ Yeast. Yeah, Russ had a really great interception, but that wasn't all he was doing. I mean, he was only came away with three total tackles and one ta- half of a tackle for loss, but it seemed like he was in on more stops than that. Just with the, all the gang tackles, it's kind of hard to really calculate everyone's individual tackles um you know to be honest i wasn't really super high on him coming in as a transfer from louisville um everything i'd heard about him i i wasn't really expecting a great athlete but uh he was really flying around he looked great out there um i will mention the other guy that we uh wanted to put up here is tim horn i mean he didn't come away with many stats but that guy is a beast in the middle, and he looks monstrous. I saw a picture of him standing next to Boom Massey, who is not a small individual, and Boom <laughs> did not look like a big guy. Yeah, he definitely looks the part. <laughs> and I remember that he got popped for an offsides on it, but I remember when uh, I want to say it was in the third quarter where they got him with the hard count and he just blows the center up and just runs right. <laughs> He's getting rated. And I don't even remember if it was uh, Jack West or if it was McKee that was in at that point, but he, he definitely has a, a, some surge. And I, I think he's a guy that we're going to hear his name called on Sundays. He's got all the measurables and uh, we've, we've talked about all the, the intangibles that he brings. The guy's only been on campus a handful of months and was already able to earn the, the trust of his teammates, was voted a team captain. Uh, Tim Horn's going to be a big-time player for this defense this season. But to pivot back, though, to Russ Yeast, a, a, again, so many guys in the secondary stood out, but he was Johnny on the spot with that interception, had a half tackle for loss. Uh, a really nice outing from him in this season opener. Now, 
A couple more to throw out here before we uh, kind of wrap up week one. The the John Hubert Award obviously goes to our unsung hero of the week. Uh, and, and again, a lot of different guys here that we talked about, but we ultimately ended up landing on a wide receiver that's been here for a minute, Justin and Phillip Brooks. You know, has really been known for his receiving prowess. You know, obviously really kind of burst onto the scene. Uh, with that with that punt return performance against KU last year, um, kind of uh, bucked the re- return specialist title this week. Team high three catches for team high 81 yards. Uh, obviously, the the highlight play being that 56 yard pass that set up the first touchdown. That was the longest pass play in the Big 12 uh, for Week One. So obviously, good to see him. You know work his way open and, you know, uh, get some receiving stats. So, you know, hopefully that's something he can build on because if he can become a legitimate option out there, that makes the offense, you know, just that much more dangerous. And he had it a really, really nice really, turn that was wiped out by a really stupid block in the back by Nick sure, Allen. Sure, good call. <laughs> I was going to see if you remembered who it was. Yeah, Nick Allen was one of those guys. We'd been hearing about him potentially getting some reps at linebacker. Uh, but yeah, penalties were were definitely one thing that held K-State back. The Cats end up with nine penalties for 80 yards. You guys touched on Nick Allen's penalty, negating a lengthy punt return there by Phillip Brooks. The aforementioned pick by Russ Yeast actually set K-State up with decent field position towards the end of the first half, and it looked like the Wildcats were going to try and get some points before halftime and they got out close to midfield, but a holding call got them behind the sticks ends up thwarting that drive. So K-State just elects to sit on the 14-0 lead and take that into the locker room. So that's an area that needs to get cleaned up. That game could have been put out of reach much sooner, but in any event, the Wildcats made it clear that they were not going to be denied. And that brings us to our final distinction the trey walker award going to our player who delivers the most defining play in the game and i think this comes on the wildcats first touchdown drive of the 2021 season skyler on that qb keeper got a great kick out block from nick Lenners on that play runs into the end zone and guys i don't know how you felt about it but in watching the replay it looked to me like he could have sidestepped caillou kelly but he elected to go in, drop the shoulder, and just truck him on his way into the end zone. I think that was great. Something Skyler probably needed. You need to feel as a quarterback after coming off of an injury that you're not made of glass. And I think to me that signified that Skyler Thompson is back. And that was really a big tone setter for the day. That was awesome. I lost my mind when I saw that. Uh, man, you just don't see that out of the K-State players very much. That was probably the best truck stick since Mike McCoy in 2017. I mean, and then he just kind of stood over him for half a second. You love to see that out of your leader. It's pretty cool to see him kind of avenge that pick that Blue came down with in the end zone, too. Yeah, I love the play, but at the same time, you're already a yard in the end zone. I'm like, please don't get a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> Lose our quarterback to a targeting call on a touchdown. <laughs> Would have been a hell of a thing to see in week one. Uh, fortunately, that was that was not the case. We did have a couple of other candidates for the Trey Walker distinction. Uh, I think TJ Smith's interception that set K-State up with a knockout touchdown late in the fourth quarter deserves to be mentioned. And also uh, the exceptional individual effort by Khalid Duke on his sack where he split the double team and came through and dumped the Stanford quarterback midway through the third quarter when the game was ostensibly still in the balance. 
uh, again, some some great moments, some great havoc plays from the defense. He had some big time explosive plays from the offense. A lot of fun uh, in week one as the Wildcats again emerge victorious, 24 to seven over the Stanford Cardinal. We'll briefly look at the results from the Big 12 in week one now before we jump into our Southern Illinois preview. Conference teams go nine and one in college football's true week one. KU getting things kicked off for the Big 12 last Friday in Lawrence. And Lance Leipold's bunch needed each and every one of those 60 minutes to escape with a 17 to 14 victory over the South Dakota Coyotes. You, you take solace in this as a KU fan just because you won the game, but there's not much else to be positive about beyond that. The Jayhawks only mustered 245 yards and 12 first downs uh, against an FCS squad that was projected, uh, excuse me, projected eighth in the Missouri Valley this year. This is an FCS team that's probably only going to win four games if I had to put money on it. I don't know how much more winning is going to be done by Leipold's bunch this season. I think it became very apparent that this is going to be a pretty long and arduous climb up the hill for Lance Leipold and company. But nevertheless, KU does get a win in week one. Again, 17-14, to 14, the final from Memorial Stadium in Lawrence. Elsewhere in the Big 12, Texas Tech in a gunfight with Houston, Got down in the blink of an eye, 14 to nothing, was trailing 21 to 7 at one point. But ultimately, the Red Raiders do rally and come out on top with a 38 to 21 win over future Big 12 conference mate Houston. Uh, Dana Holgerson just can't seem to get rid of us here. Um, I I don't want fans to be really deceived by that final score. This this was a 24 to 21 game with less than two minutes to go, uh, a late touchdown pass, or excuse me, the Texas Tech connected on a a long bomb late in the fourth quarter on what was a what I felt was a very egregious offensive pass interference that did not get called. Tyler Shuck connects with Xavier White on a three-yard touchdown pass a couple plays later to make it 31-21 with two minutes left and then they get a late 44 yard touchdown run with one minute left so don't be too deceived by the 17 point margin this was a very competitive game that Houston was very much in but Matt Wells a coach and arguably the coach with the hottest seat in the conference does get a much needed victory in H-Town again Texas Tech winners over the Houston Cougars 38 to 21 the Baylor Bears do manage to escape San Marcos with a win. They beat Texas State 29-20. to They record a safety on the final play of the contest, but this was still a game where Texas State was going toe-to-toe with the Baylor Bears. So jury's still out on Dave Aranda's bunch there. I don't take much from that other than I think They've got a ways to go offensively, especially after Charlie Brewer left. They've got some soul searching to do on that front. TCU 45-3 winners over Duquesne. They actually ended up shortening this to 12-minute quarters after TCU got out 40, excuse me, 35 to nothing through the first half. They go 12-minute quarters in the second half, and the Horn Frogs come out with a 45-3 victory in their season opener. 
Another Missouri Valley Conference team pushing a Big 12 team to the limit. Oklahoma State holding on for dear life in Stillwater with a 23-16 win over the Missouri State Bears. Yet another Missouri Valley team pushing a Big 12 squad. Northern Iowa going toe-to-toe with 7th-ranked Iowa State. 16-10 was the final from Jack Trice Stadium in Ames. I know... Iowa State fans are always going to point to the look-ahead factor because they typically will open up with a pretty tough FCS squad and does tend to be Northern Iowa. But week two for Iowa State is traditionally the Iowa game, so there is going to be that look-ahead factor there. But in any event, a lackluster day from Brees Hall only has 69 yards on 23 totes. That offense looked pretty meh against a UNI squad that's Thought of somewhat highly in the Missouri Valley, but again, not a team that's expected to contend for the Missouri Valley title this season. But nevertheless, the Cyclones 16 to 10 winners at home over UNI. Steve Sarkeesian's debut on the 40 Acres goes very well. Bijan Robinson, we mentioned, a Big 12 Offensive Player of the Week. The Horns, 38 to 18 winners over the 23rd ranked Louisiana Ragin' Cajun. So a nice win for Texas. They do have a little bit stiffer test coming up in Week 2. We'll talk about the Week 2 matchups after we wrap up the Southern Illinois portion of the preview. Oklahoma 40 to 35 winners over Tulane, a very cool gesture by the Sooners. Uh, obviously, University of Tulane displaced by Hurricane Ida. They have to move this game from New Orleans to Oklahoma. The Sooners actually painting the Green Wave logo onto the field. Uh, again, a very cool gesture by Oklahoma. And, and this was a, a game that looked like it was going to get out of hand. It was 37 to 14 at one point, but the green wave with a late surge to make Oklahoma really sweat this one out. The final score ends up being 40 to 35 in favor of the Sooners. But if I'm an Oklahoma fan, we had been hearing a lot of chatter about Alex Grinch being this defensive wonderkin who was going to elevate Oklahoma from just being the playoff also ran to being the team that might actually have an opportunity to beat a Clemson, to beat a Georgia, whoever it may be in the playoff and make it make it to the national championship. I don't know if that's going to happen this season. Obviously you don't want to read too much into week one, but there are still quite a few holes. It looks like on this Oklahoma squad And something to keep in mind uh, as a K-State fan, the Wildcats opening up a three-game series with the Green Wave starting next season, and it's going to go even-numbered years after that. So in 22, Tulane will come to Manhattan. 24, Cats make the return trip down to New Orleans. And then in 26, that series concludes in Manhattan. So something to keep in mind. Willie Fritz's squad is usually plucky, and I don't know if he's going to be moving on to another job here anytime soon. But that's a game that uh, that's an opponent that should definitely have your attention if you're a K-State fan. And finally, the conference's lone loss in week one comes at the hands of the Big Ten's Maryland Terrapins. They knock out West Virginia 30 to 24, the final from College Park, Maryland. We touched on it, how West Virginia's defense, which was really their calling card, they were the second best scoring defense in the conference last season, giving up just under 22 points per game. 
they had a rough day at the office. They give up 496 yards of total offense to the Terps, to Leah Tungavailoa, to his younger brother, uh, for those of you who don't know, and as you might assume. He throws for 332 yards and three touchdowns against West Virginia. On the flip side of the coin for the ears, they turn the ball over four times. A pretty mad day at the office for Jarrett Dagey. Throws for 277, but it takes him 40 attempts to get there. Just a rough day all around for West Virginia. Kind of a surprising effort from Neil Brown's squad, who they, they were the favorite going into that game, and they've really kind of been on the gradual ascent since he came in and took over for Dana Holgerson a couple of years ago. So a tough setback for West Virginia, a 50-50 game that they probably needed to grab if they had any aspirations of making the bowl game because they have Virginia Tech on their non-con slate as well. So... Might be a little bit of a tough year for West Virginia. Again, not wanting to read too far into week one, but a tough setback for the ears as they fall to Maryland. Again, 30-24, to 24, the final in that contest. But all in all, a nice opening week for the Big 12. Again, schools going 9-1. and one. What results really jumped off the page to you guys? Yeah, uh, the Oklahoma State score definitely caught my eye till I realized Spencer Sanders didn't play. Um, that definitely kind of changed my tune on that one. Obviously, Iowa State always seems to screw around in their first game against a lesser opponent. No knock on you and I, as we know, you know, an FCS team is going to jump up and bite somebody early every single year. Um, I was a little surprised to see Tech end up rally to beat Houston that handily um, after being down 14 nothing, pretty much out the gate. Um, then, obviously, Tulane took Oklahoma for a ride. I mean, there are definitely still some some defensive questions to be answered in Norman right now. I just think it's funny how many OU fans are wanting to get rid of Rattler right now, and he's probably going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Say that Texas Tech game, I had a layover flight in Miami, and I was watching – I caught that game for a few minutes, and it was 21-7, to and then I got home – at like midnight or whatever. And I checked the scores and saw that they won that game. I was like pretty surprised by that. (laughs) I'm sure there were plenty of Texas tech fans that were elated that the red Raiders found a way to rally and beat a very quality G five team in Houston. But I'm sure there's also a growing segment of that fan base. That's becoming tired of Matt Wells and that wants to move on from him. Then that group of fans probably wasn't all that thrilled with the outcome of last Saturday's game. But in any event, the big 12 does acquit itself quite nicely in uh, week one. Again, conference teams going nine and one in the opening week of the college football season. We turn our attention now to week two of the college football season. K-State getting geared up for its home opener as the Wildcats will play host to the Southern Illinois Salukis out of the Missouri Valley. And joining us to help break down the Wildcats week two opponent is Todd Hepperman. He covers the Salukis for the Southern Illinois and you can read his work at the southern.com. And Todd, I want to start off with a high-level question about the Missouri Valley. Again, this is a conference from which Chris Kleiman hails. He obviously wrecked the Valley for a number of years, racking up all those national championships with North Dakota State. Now that he's left, is there a sentiment that North Dakota State is still the cock of the walk, or is this league a little bit more open than it's been in years past? 
Well, kind of a little bit of both. Uh, South Dakota State was picked to win the league. Um, they've got a lot of good players coming back. They have two two running backs that were, I think, were both All-Americans. They have a bunch of their defensive guys. But the, but the issue with them is their quarterback was the offensive player of the year, the newcomer of the year, and the freshman of the year. And he hurt his knee, I think, in the national championship game. And he's not playing this year, Mark Gronowski. So he's out. So they, they turned it over to uh, – the, and their backup is hurt as well. So they had to go to their third-string quarterback. But their third-string quarterback, uh, I believe, is a transfer either from Samford or from an FBS school and is, you know, was really good. That was their first game against Colorado State. They handled Colorado State on the road, as, as a lot of people thought they would, even though Colorado State's an FBS program. Uh, the Jacks uh, almost beat – I believe they did beat Kansas a couple years ago. They've uh, they've really had it going. They made it to the national championship game last year and have almost everybody back. So, but North Dakota State, their issue was at quarterback, and they have a guy I think from Virginia Tech um, that is also very good. So they were picked second, and they haven't picked, been picked second I think in ten years. Uh, they've won the national championship as you probably know eight out of the last ten years I believe. They won it eight, seven of eight years when Kleiman was the head coach. A um, couple other years when he was the defensive coordinator. So the league is really good, but because you have those two, and so SIU is ranked uh, seventh. Uh, they they actually dropped to eighth uh, because a team from Montana beat Washington and jumped them in the poll, uh, even though SIU won by 26 points. So SIU has a lot of people back. Northern Iowa has their quarterback back, who was hurt half the spring. Um, Missouri State has Bobby Petrino as their head coach. They made the playoffs for the first time in a long time last year. So the Valley's very deep. Uh, even the worst teams, Western Illinois almost beat Ball State on the road, and Western was supposed to be atrocious uh, this year. So the league is really good from top to bottom, 1 through 11. Um, it's just that at the top, uh, South Dakota State may be a little bit better than NDSU. It truly is the the SEC of the FCS. Like, it, it's ridiculous how many schools out of that conference are routinely in the FCS playoffs every single year. It, it is a gauntlet. That is for sure. Now you, you did allude to it a little bit earlier. Uh, Southern is tabbed fourth in the Missouri Valley in the preseason ranking, uh, the preseason conference projections. And I looked and I saw 17 sixth year seniors coming back and, and were we feeling at all surprised that they were tabbed that low? No, that's about where I thought they would be. North Dakota was picked ahead of them. Uh, North Dakota hammered them first game of the spring. Now SIU was was missing a couple people, uh, didn't have as much practice time uh, because of COVID. But North Dakota ended up being a playoff team as well, and they have a great history. And they just joined the league uh, last year, so the league was pretty tremendous. Uh, without North Dakota, now you add a team that has a great winning streak at home. Uh, I believe they have an FBS game this weekend that we'll all be watching. And um, so SIU was picked about where we thought they would be after making the playoffs. They have a new quarterback, um, but but a lot of, you know, 10 starters on both sides of the ball, 17, six-year seniors, as you said. And their schedule really kind of uh, is good for them, too, as they I think they play more home games than road games. They only have one FBS school. They had two FBS schools on their schedule in 2019 and beat one of them. So they're uh, they're on the rise, but uh, they, they it wasn't a surprise they weren't picked to win the league. 
undoubtedly some bulletin board material for Coach Nick Hill. He has a very deep and experienced squad coming back in Carbondale. If you look at the preseason All-Missouri Valley Football Conference teams, a total of 13 Salukis were littered across the first team, second team, and honorable mention squads. That's a high for any team in the Missouri Valley. And I did want to ask about one of those players in particular, uh, the quarterback, Stone Lebonowitz. He ends up announcing that he's going to leave the program really just days before the season started. D- did you get the sense that that maybe shook locker room or confidence in any way? I, I know you obviously had Nick Baker waiting to come back in and assume his role as the starter, but you never know what that kind of a thing might do to a locker room that close to the start of the season. Yeah, I'm not. I haven't been able to find out if it really was a shock to people because he he'd already. I think he's already finished his degree. But but it was, certainly was a shock to us uh, in the media that thought even if he was the backup, um, he was the third stringer last year. You know, he's been the backup before and got a chance to take them to the playoffs and did that. And Nick is always, you know, for a lot of t- a lot of reasons, he's usually gone with the hot hand um, as far as he'll go with the, the guy that won the previous week because the starter for the for the spring season, to make a long story short, was hurt in the first game was out a couple weeks, and even when he was healthy to come back, he still went with Stone Lobanowitz because he had won the previous game and, and I think the game before that. So he was going with the hot hand, and, and Stone showed a lot of moxie, you know, as a very creative quarterback, you know, had been a winner in, in junior college and um, took them to the playoffs and, and won a playoff game on the road uh, against the third-ranked team in the country in Utah where nobody had won uh, for a long time in the postseason and we kind of thought he was going to win the job, but because Nick Baker had been the second string quarterback to start the spring, we thought, you know, are, are they going to, they're going to give Stone the most reps, but if Stone, you know, falters, it doesn't have a good camp. I wouldn't be surprised if they gave it to Nick. And I thought Nick could have started in 2019 as well. Um, but I, I, I kind of was surprised he didn't, he, he didn't win the job, but then also to leave the next day, leave the program, because now you go from Nick Baker, instead of Nick Baker to Stone Lebonowitz, you go from Nick Baker to five true freshmen that have not played hardly at all. They haven't played any in the Valley. And Stone Norton had played a couple games for a Florida international team that, I, that did not win a game uh, in, the, in the fall. So big drop-off. Uh, it really hurts. Hopefully we won't have to ever find out, but... Um, SIU hasn't had a quarterback run through the whole season in almost 12 years. So I think we're going to find out at some point. Uh, K-State fans know as well as anybody after Skylar Thompson got knocked out in, in, in the third game of the season last year, things kind of fell off a cliff for that for that squad. So we know the depth of right. quarterback is an issue really for, for any program. But to get it back to Nick Baker, he, uh, he obviously – uh, showed no signs of wear coming back from that injury uh, and throwing for 460 yards and four touchdowns in the Saluki's 47 to 21 win over SEMO in the opener named the co-offensive player of the week in the Valley. Could you, could you characterize what fan, uh, what K-State fans can expect to see out of the Southern Illinois offense this Saturday? You're going to see a lot of different formations. They, they do run a lot of different formations. They will run a lot of RPO, run run pass option. Um, they'll use some some wildcat with Javon Williams Jr., who was about a six four running back that used to be a quarterback in high school, scored 50, 50 touchdowns uh, about his senior year alone. 
Uh, he's a six, four kid that can run. Um, he had a, a rushing touchdown, a receiving touchdown and a throwing touchdown against Youngstown state, I believe in 2019. So they, they use him in a lot of different ways and they're supposed to get their two, two other running backs back that did not play against SEMO. So they may play three or four different running backs. They have an all American receiver, uh, Avante Cox, that doesn't look like a ton. When you look at him, he's about five, nine, but he can run like the wind. Uh, and he's going to be a problem for Kansas state. So you'll see them. I think they're going to go more to their ground game than they did against SEMO. They came out throwing, um, which I thought was a little surprising and very uncharacteristic, but they have a veteran offensive line and they've added a tight end from Memphis, Tyce Daniel, that's really athletic and they really want to use him in the downfield passing game. So you'll, you'll see a little bit of everything, but I think they're going to go a little bit more to their ground game than they did last week. Yeah. Memphis transfer. And it looks like, and just looking up and down this roster littered with, not just guys from from G5 schools, but there's a handful of P5 guys in there as well. Uh, so plenty of talent on this Southern Illinois squad. Now, to kind of pivot and look towards the defense, uh, again, some garbage time points for SEMO. And uh, like I said, a game that's, that Southern really handled from start to finish. But what uh, what do they bring to the table defensively? They, uh, they haven't had a lot of interceptions. They only had about five all of last spring. And that was a little surprising because they had two All-Americans in their defensive backfield. Uh, Quay Brown is their starting safety. James Caesar. Uh, played in the national semifinals in Division Two. He actually played here, went to Ferris State, and came back uh, in the spring and is able to play in the fall. Uh, so they have some excellent experience at cornerback. Um, the other one they have is P.J. Jules, who's almost 6'4". So they have some big guys in the defensive backfield. But they're really excited about their defensive line and their front seven overall. They don't even have their leading tackler from last year, uh, Bryson Strong, who had off-season shoulder surgery. I don't think he's going to play this weekend either. But Bryce Notree has had some – every NFL scout has been in to see him um, and a couple other players. He's their middle linebacker from Texas. He can run, uh, has a couple tackles for loss, a couple sacks to his credit. But their defensive line, they, they've added two, two or three tackles um, from the FBS ranks. Uh, Richie Haggerty's from Miami of Ohio. Um, they have two defensive ends that are veteran six-year players and been in the program for six years. They're approaching some career records, but they are really excited about their tackles and overall their defensive line. You'll see four or five, six, maybe as many as eight or nine guys that they can shuffle in and out, uh, and they didn't have to play the last 11 minutes of the game. So they're they're a, they're a deeper defense than most FCS teams, not just because of the COVID rules, but because they've added a bunch of players that they feel like can play. Uh, at a high level for a long time. Keeping bodies fresh, definitely going to be paramount this week. And I checked the forecast, supposed to top out at 99 in the Little Apple this uh, coming Saturday. So it's going to be a toasty one for the season opener. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Coach uh, Nick Hill uh, entering his sixth season here. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is his best team that he's had likely in that six-year stint but uh just going back and looking through his records um kind of surprised because things kind of dipped on him in year three kind of surprised that he got the the chance and and maybe that's just me looking at that through the 
the prism of a fan of a, of a power five school where fans when year three is kind of the make it or break it year. And if you're taking a step back that season, that's when universities usually elect to cut ties. What can you tell us just about coach Nick Hill, the type of resolve that he's brought to this program and just some of the intangibles that maybe we don't see show up on the field? Yeah. For, first of all, I mean, he's a, he's a great guy. He was a quarterback at Duquoin high school. It's about 15 miles from Carbondale. He was a two sport athlete. He actually went to Western Kentucky on a basketball scholarship uh, before coming back to SIU as a quarterback about two years later. And he led him to the semifinals um, as a senior uh, right before Jerry kill went to Northern Illinois. So He's, uh, he's had experience winning in this league. Um, it was very different then. Had Western Kentucky and Youngstown State in it uh, were at the top. The Dakota schools were not in it at that time. But he was, he's always been a great offensive mind. Um, it, w- it was a little bit of a surprise, honestly, when he got the job. He, he, you know, people were talking about him because he has local ties. And he, he's always done a lot for the communities. Doesn't have a lot of baggage. But he had no experience. He, he had been a head coach at Carbondale High School. He'd been an offensive coordinator for a couple of Dale Lennon's teams that had not made the playoffs after he got Jerry's kills players were gone. They won the league his first two years and never made the postseason after that. And SIU was used to making the postseason every year in the FCS. So it was a little bit of a surprise, but the, the, it, was, it was also he was, we knew he was a young and up-and-coming coach. We knew he could coach offense. Um, he did play some in the arena league, had a couple tryouts with the Bears and the Packers. So he has some professional experience. Um, but, you know, and then the first recruiting class is, is a bunch. He has seven seven starters from that 2016 class on this year's team in their sixth year. And a couple of those other guys, Jeremy Chin is in the NFL. Craig James is in the NFL um, that also came from his first class. So he's recruited very well, recruited at a higher level that we've had in a long time. And I think that's where you start starting to see the results. Uh, we thought they were going to get in the playoffs in 2019, but they were left out of the field when they went seven and five, they had two FBS teams on that schedule and everybody had them in uh, that was projecting the bracket. Uh, so that was a disappointment. And they, they, he was going into his last year essentially after that. And they gave him a two year extension. And then they finally gave him an extension and a little bit of a raise after the spring season. So um, he's doing great. It's just, how are they going to break through just for the spring or is this the upward movement they've been waiting for where they start making the playoffs every year and start contending for the national championship? Looking forward to to seeing this squad. And this is, uh, again, I believe it's going to be a great test for Kansas state and, and they've got a, uh, there's been really no breaks on the non-con schedule for the Wildcats. You open up with Stanford, uh, one of really the better programs in the Pac-12 over the last decade, then you have to go right into an, a very up-and-coming FCS team in Southern Illinois, and then you follow that up with the te- uh, team in Nevada that just bumped off Cal on the road. So uh, I think this Saluki team is going to present a lot of unique challenges to Kansas State, particularly on the defensive side. They didn't really get tested a lot in the secondary by Stanford. I think they'll definitely get some more downfield shots out of this Southern Illinois squad. So with all that said, uh, I'll, I'll ask you the final question here. What do you, uh, what's your feeling as far as how this game's going to play out? And do you have a score in mind? Uh, you're not the first person to ask me. And, and I, I, I may be going out on a limb, but, but I really think SIU is going to win uh, in a really close game. 
Uh, I find it hard to believe that they're not going to be able to compete with Kansas State after every team in their league has competed with everybody in the Big 12 that have been ranked above Kansas State. I think Kansas State is still looking for some explosive players past Deuce Vaughn. So I've uh, I've picked them 28 to 27. Uh, I think they're going to. I find it hard to believe they're not going to be able to score, even though Kleiman has a great uh, reputation, and I have a lot of respect for him as a defensive coach. And obviously, they locked up Stanford for seven points. Uh, I think SIU has some a lot of explosive players. They scored 30 or more points in five of their last six uh, FBS games. So I, I think it's going to be a great game. It's going to go down to the wire. Um, and I and I think SIU is going to try find a way to pull it out. Should definitely be an entertaining contest for sure. Now, uh, just to to wrap things up here, you said you are going to be making the tra- uh, the trek out to Manhattan. Yep, yep, I'll be there. For, I'm staying in Topeka. Uh, there aren't a lot of hotels in in Manhattan that were available. Uh, so I'm excited. I've never been to Kansas State. Uh, I went to their basketball arena, but I've never been to their football stadium. So. Excited to be in a football stadium after watching the SEMO game on the sideline because their their stadium was deemed structurally unsound, so it couldn't be oh. couldn't use the press box, couldn't use half the stadium because they they deemed it structurally unsound the night before the game. So that was uh, that was entertaining, but I'll be happy to have a seat and a press box and and power and the internet and be actually watch the game and see what happens. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and uh, you'll definitely be appreciating the air conditioning, I'm sure, on Saturday afternoon and on into the evening. When you do make your way into yeah. town again, I w- wish you safe travels coming into Manhattan. Um, before I uh, wrap things up, where can our uh, our listeners find you on Twitter? Where can they read your work? Yeah, um, uh, my work is at thesouthern.com. Uh, we have all our, all our Saluki stuff there. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at... T. Hefferman, that's capital T, capital H, E, F, F, E, R, M, A, N. So we've gotten the inside slant from Todd on Southern Illinois. Now it's time to look into what the podcasts have to say about the Wildcats week two matchup against the Saluki. So guys, let's let's dive into it here. How are we feeling about K-State here in week two? What are your initial impressions of this game as the Wildcats get set to take on a a pretty prolific offense? So I definitely think this is a good team coming into Manhattan, but I also think this is a very good K-State team. And a very good K-State team should beat the crap out of a very good lower-level team. Even if... You know, it, it stays competitive maybe for the first half. I look for them to at least pull away by three touchdowns by the end of the game. There was ever a coach to not overlook an FCS program. He is on the K-State sideline. But even if, you know, they are a top-level team in the F, uh, FCS, I think we should still win handily. You know, if if we lose or it's a pretty close game, It'll definitely be concerning. It kind of takes away some of the uh, the excitement after last week, for sure. I will say one thing. Their quarterback did throw for a whole bunch of yards in their opener. I do think uh, our secondary better better show up ready to play. That, that We're going to be tested a lot more. I mean, I, I had a buddy text me during the Stanford game, you know, basically said, you know, I, I'm going to temper expectations in, until I see how we do against a team with one quarterback. And I know this kid's been known to throw picks, but – 
he he can definitely rack up stats too. So we better be better better be ready for that. Yeah, I'm actually kind of excited to see what our secondary uh, is going to do against a team that's going to come out and sling the ball around. Look for Echo Boydo to get his first career interception. Calling it right here. <laughs> My fantasy team would be we very got him on fantasy. <laughs> Yeah, this uh, Southern Illinois has uh, they they obviously didn't take on any FBS programs in this uh, this past spring, uh, but they did. They have faced at least one FBS team going back for the last several years. Uh, they won at UMass in 2019. Now that's not really saying a whole lot because UMass arguably is the worst program playing FBS football right now. I think uh, UConn might have something to say about that, but um, Southern Illinois did, did win handily in Amherst 45 to 20 uh, going back though. In that same season in 2019 uh, SIU lost at Arkansas state uh, 41 to 28 was the final there. So I think that right there tells that should also be something that kind of perks up the radar of, uh, of this squad. Uh, just having eaten the curb against Arkansas State last year, I think you're looking. You should probably take this game a little bit more seriously than you would otherwise. Uh, and I just want to quickly go back through some of the other results. <laughs> 76 to 41 is a basketball score, but this was also the score of the 2018 contest between Southern Illinois and Ole Miss. Uh, going back to 2017, uh, they lost at Memphis 44 to 31. Uh, Memphis was very good that year, though. That team ended up winning 10 games, and they won their AAC division, so they ended up playing for the conference championship. So uh, this is a team that's acquitted itself quite nicely against FBS competition. So, uh, again, and and given all the experience that's coming back on that roster for Southern Illinois, uh, I don't think this is a group that's going to be rattled now. I did go back through and look, you know, you play at Ole Miss. That was a pretty, you know, as far as some of the teams that Hugh Freeze had had the few seasons prior, this Ole Miss team had taken a pretty significant step down. Um, Memphis, you know, not much of an atmosphere in the Liberty Bowl. And then if you go all the way back to 2015, when some of these guys were freshmen, uh, they did go down to the wire with Indiana and Bloomington. They ended up losing that game 48 to 47. But I I think it's going to be safe to say that Bill Snyder Family Stadium will be the most imposing atmosphere that any of these guys uh, from Carbondale have played in. So I think that does bode well for Kansas State. Again, there's going to be a lot of big tests for this uh, group, and I think this will be, you know, if if all goes according to plan for for us here in the K State side of the equation, this ends up being a very very good tune-up in preparation for Nevada. Nevada ended up bumping off Cal in their season opener, 22-17 to in Berkeley. So I think that this game could really serve, again, as a nice little springboard to get you ready for Nevada. And then also, really, when you think about it and project forward, really get you prepped for what you're going to see for a majority of Big 12 play. Now, with all that said, I think it's time to go ahead and go into our, our... our picks for the units and the players that need to show up. So we're going to start off with our, our Marvin Simmons, who, who needs to show me more this week. Um, and Clint will go ahead and start off with you there. Uh, I'm looking for Julius Brents to, to really show what he's all about against this high powered passing attack. 
uh, he had good coverage last week, but he was a little late uh, turning his head around and uh, defending some of those balls to um, uh, Stanford's bigger receiver. You know, Brents is a really long athlete. I think he's he's six foot four is what he's listed at. Um, so that's kind of the player that he needs to be where he can go up and defend against those bigger guys, uh, get his hand in there, knock some balls away, and maybe come away with an interception. So uh, although he did not play bad last week, I look to see him make a little bit more of some impact plays. Netter? Um, I'm going to go a different route, and it's in no way an indictment of his performance in week one, but uh, I think we're going to have to see what Cody Fletcher's made of this week, especially since we will be without the services of Daniel Green for the first half due to that uh, targeting penalty. Um, or, you know, maybe more so we're going to have to find out, you know, what all, what other kind of depth we have at linebacker. I think it's, it's going to be on the surface uh, pretty much from the word go in this one. So, again, not an indictment on what they did in week one, but – Definitely time for someone else to step up. Yeah, and uh, Southern does possess a, a, a high-level transfer. Kid came over from Memphis, Ty Staniel, had five catches for 62 yards uh, as, as a tight end and a touchdown in their season opener. So Cody Fletcher's probably going to be asked to do a little bit more pass coverage this week. So that'll be a, a good matchup to watch for sure. And Alex, who's your pick? So I'm going with a few units on offense instead of a single player but uh i think we need to see more out of our wide receiver unit and also our backup running backs um you know as great as deuce was i know our backups didn't get many carries but i feel like this is a good game for jacardier Wright to get in and you know pound the stone a little bit um hopefully we can you know impose our our will on on this defense uh with that offensive line we have um i feel like this is a good game to get kind of a power run game going um wide receivers just and this is kind of a two-prong thing you know it's wide receivers and quarterback because you know sometimes it's wide receivers are getting open and the quarterback's not finding them but uh you know i feel like this is a game you know a matter baby had a good game the other uh, the other day, I felt like we saw some good stuff out of him. Um, Brooks with three three catches and and the the yards, but you know I feel like we need to get more of a rhythm in the passing game. All solid picks there, gentlemen. Uh, I want to see the defensive line really step up and dominate this week. That's my pick. Uh, I, I think it, it was nice to see the guys rack up eight tackles for loss, including four sacks in week number one. And I, I think to to take some of the pressure off of that linebacker core, to take some of the pressure off of that secondary, you want your guys in on the defensive line to really wreck things. And again, this is this is where we should see the most notable, excuse me, most noticeable difference between FBS and FCS talent is in the trenches. And this is a game where Tim Horn, Khalid Duke, Massey, all those guys need to be showing up in a big way and really disrupting this passing game. Because I, I, I do believe this is going to be a competitive game for two and a half plus quarters potentially. But I, I do think this is a game that K-State does find a way to pull away and win. But I think that's going to be largely contingent on whether or not the defensive line is getting a push. If they're allowing 
uh, Nick Baker to just sit back in the pocket and pick his man, it could be a little bit more stressful going down into the fourth quarter for this game, for this team. So defensive line is my pick for the Marvin Simmons. I need to see more distinction. Now we do have one other item that we're going to jump into here are Ben Newman distinction. Who is the guy at the end of this Saturday? Are we going to say pounded the hell out of that stone? The guy that definitely impressed me the most as far as uh, where this award might pertain to was Eli Huggins. And I looked for him to do kind of the same thing next week uh, because we were running that three, three, five, which I was very worried about, you know, because we're going to moving one of those defensive tackles out to defensive end for that. You know, how are we going to do getting the um, pass rush out of that thing? But Eli Huggins was looking phenomenal. So if he can continue that going into next week, just like you were talking about, the defensive line getting pressure, that's going to be a huge aspect right there. My ultimate stone pounder in this game is going to be Jacardier Wright. I think he's going to get eight to ten carries, and he's going to run over some dudes. Um, I want them to be talking about how foolish we all were for questioning Skyler's downfield passing decisions. That's that's definitely my big one, is I want to see him let it rip and uh, hit some guys in stride. I want to see him light up the stat sheet in the passing game. Uh, Nutter, you took it right away from me there. <laughs> um, if you're going to say Skyler, I'm going to say uh, Malik Knowles, because uh, I think we it was – it was nice that we didn't really need to see a lot out of him. You know, granted, he did some damage, you know, with a couple of balls that he caught and that uh, and, and taking the at the end of rounds. You know, he's a very capable receiver. He's obviously very capable running the ball as well. I think this is a game where you want to see him really shine and, and abuse the secondary and come away with a two to, you know, a two touchdown type performance catches over a hundred yards worth of passes. Like, I, I think that's the type of outing we need to see from him. But I, I, I agree with you. I think Skyler is probably going to be your guy, but I wouldn't be shocked if Malik Knowles ends up going off. If they find a favorable matchup that they feel like they can exploit, I feel like he's going to be in contention for that stone pounder award as well. So guys, with all of that said, Go ahead and give me give me the score that makes you happy, and then give me the score that you think is, is going to be more in line with what we'll actually see. Uh, what would make me happy is beating them by, like I said earlier, at least 21 points. And uh, so I'm thinking something like 41 to 20. I think that's what's going to make me happy, and I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Little water boy, that ain't no. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I that was the number I have in my head as well. Twenty-one points is what I think we are at least twenty-one, and I think that's anything less than that is gonna, you know. I say that, you know, it obviously depends on how the game goes. We could get up huge and then put in our reserves, and they could, you know, make it closer, but. Uh, 21 is kind of that number I like, um, like a Clint, you got all the, the right numbers. I was actually thinking 41 <laughs> to 20 as well, but I'm going to go 49 to 23 is what it's going to be. 
I don't know why, Jeff, but the, when you asked the question, the first score that popped into my head was 51 to 14. So let's go with that. <laughs> I like it. Uh, I, I would certainly take any and all of the, uh, the outcomes that you guys listed. Uh, I'm, I could go with the outcome of the first meeting between these two as head coaches when Chris Kleiman was just wrecking all of FCS at North Dakota State and Nick Hill was in just his third season as head coach of the Southern Illinois Salukis. The final in that 2018 contest was North Dakota State 65, Southern Illinois 17. I do feel this one's going to be quite a bit more competitive, but ultimately I do feel it's a game that the Wildcats win and it's a game where we're not sweating the outcome in the fourth quarter. My projection is K-State 40, Southern Illinois 26. I think that we are going to see some frustrating moments from this defense just being without the services of Daniel Green in that first half. The secondary is going to be asked to defend a much more dynamic passing attack than it did against the likes of Stanford. I know this is all very bizarre to say about an FCS team, but I do believe that they're going to come in and throw their best punch at Kansas State. And they've played in P5 atmospheres before, and they've gone toe-to-toe with some pretty reputable programs over the last couple of years. So I do expect Southern Illinois to give K-State a good shot, but I do ultimately feel like the Wildcats, particularly on the defensive side, will adjust. The offense should have its way uh, with the way they executed against Stanford and averaging close to eight yards per play, if they certainly pick up and continue at that clip against an FCS team that is undoubtedly thinner as a, a collective, you should be able to continue doing what you did on the ground. And ideally, we can see some guys get in and get some snaps uh, like Jacardier Wright, seeing some guys in the passing game like Keenan Garber, Tyrone Howell. I'd like to see some more contributions there. I do feel, as I said, that K-State's going to pull away in the third quarter and stretch a lead out to about three or more scores. And maybe there's a late touchdown that makes this look a little bit closer. But I do feel like this is a game that K-State's offense particularly looks much better than it did in week one. And defensively, we might be a little bit frustrated, but I think we'll come away feeling a little bit better after some second half adjustments. So again, my projection, Cats 40, Salukis 26. Cannot wait to get back to Bill Snyder Family Stadium and take this game in live and in person. I did go to the Texas Tech game last season, and I know to any of our listeners who might have attended one of the games during the COVID season or who might have had friends or family who who went to one of those contests, I I know everybody's going to have their own opinions on it. I'll, I'll just say from my perspective, it just felt strange i know very eloquent and profound way of of framing it but it was just weird it felt like a spring game uh, having been to several bill snyder uh, several bill snyder spring games that was it, the crowd size it was pretty much akin to what you would see there where you might see eight nine thousand fans turning out to watch a game and the atmosphere as you can imagine was just very sterile so i I'm very much looking forward to getting back and seeing maybe not a capacity crowd this coming Saturday, but certainly north of 40,000 coming out to watch the Cats uh, take on Southern Illinois. I know among the four of us, I'm going to be the only one physically in attendance for this game. And and with that being said, to any of our loyal, loyal listeners, if you want to meet up on game day, slide into my DMs on Twitter. I'd be more than happy to, to meet up with anyone and, and talk Cats football. Uh, I'll be honest, my uh, my tailgate group that I'm with is on the west side. I've been seeing all these guys since I've been in my 
early teen years and, and we've been fortunate enough to keep the same group together so if you do uh, call the west side your home feel free to hit me up or if you want to make the trek over from the east side and, and meet up I'd be more than happy to, to meet and talk cats football with any of our devout listeners so with that being said we'll go ahead and, and pivot into one of our final segments here let's take a quick look at the slate of big 12 games coming up for week number two now at this stage of the season, we were, were pretty much confronted with three tiers of games. You've got your actual legitimately good contests, you've got your meh, and then you've got your body bag. And we'll start off with the good here. We've got Texas in a true road game going to Fayetteville to take on the Arkansas Razorbacks, a little former Southwest Conference flair for you. Uh, that should be a very interesting tilt for Steve Sarkeesian's bunch. Uh, the line on that one right now, seven points in favor of the visiting Longhorns. So Vegas obviously thinks pretty highly of UT after that big win. Now, that, in my mind, is going to be a more entertaining game than where the crew at College Game Day is ending up this week, which is in Ames, Iowa, for El Asico, Iowa State, and Iowa. I'll just say this. I don't care that Iowa State gets to host Game Day. That's That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that the people making the decisions know, having gathered plenty of empirical data over the years about how this game typically plays out, you have to know this is going to be an ugly defensive-oriented contest. While, yes, it's going to likely be tight and competitive, there's not going to be a whole lot of sex appeal to it. And I'm just, that's the more frustrating element to me is that the the quality of the matchup and the quality of football that we're going to see should be what dictates where game day goes. Let me just... Uh probably go a little crazy fan for a second but uh it pisses me off like no other that Iowa State is dog shit for 30 fucking years and we are a very solid program and then all of a sudden they're good for like three years and they get all of the recognition all of the perks that we struggle to get even though we've been a good program for decades Oh my God. Like it just pisses me off so much. So that's all I'll say about that is how many games have we thought, Oh, we're going to get game day for this one. Nope. Oh, we're going to get game day this one. Nope. Oh, uh, you know, we we'll get the, the benefit of the ranking or the benefit of the bowl game selection or all this other stuff. No, but Iowa state's good for three damn years and they turn into fuck, you know, a diamond. And it's like, what the hell? I don't know. You guys agree with me, right? <laughs> that is the angriest I've heard Alex on this show. Oh my goodness. It's just so annoying. Like, they're good for three years. And they they don't, you know, they get all of a sudden it's people act like they've been a solid program for decades. It's like the, the funny, you know, people, Gene Chizik got a freaking almost a blue blood level job for winning like four games there. Like. No, expectations there have been dreadful for so long, and all of a sudden they're viewed as, you know, a, a good job, a good program. doesn't make any sense. It really is remarkable how their fans just subjected themselves to, like, they turn out. I, I will say that for Iowa State fans, man. They turn out 
regardless of how inexplicably average or below average their product on the field is, they will pack Jack Trice week in and week out. They did that for Paul Rhodes. They did it for, I mean, Gene Chizik had bad teams, very bad teams when he was in Ames, and yet they're still putting 50, you know, at that point in time before they had expanded, they were putting over 50,000 people in the stands every week to watch god-awful football. It just makes no sense. Now, I, I will say this as far as game day goes. The reason it's there is because of network BS. Oregon is playing at Ohio State. That's number 12 at number three. Guess which network is carrying that game? Not ESPN. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is the right answer. Uh, Fo- Big Fox. Uh, that's Big Noon kickoff on Saturday. So it's unfortunate. Like, And, and I don't know if that game's going to be any good, but you at least have the headliners there. You know, you have the team that played in the Fiesta Bowl last year and the team that made the national championship game last year. I mean, I... I- I have nothing against Iowa State's fans. I've always actually kind of admired their dedication to their team when they're just terrible year after year. Uh, you know, even with K-State, us not being horrible, we kind of drift into being mediocre and our fans kind of stop showing up. You, you could see with basketball, you know, we're, we're bad for one year and it's just Bramlage is like empty. So, you know, I've always had respect for their fans, but it's like, once their program starts to get on a little bit of a roll, they seem to be just hitting every, you know, everything in stride. Whereas with our program, it has always felt like we are just like battling uphill for, you know, recognition, for for bowl slotting, for, you know, TV slots, all of the above. We're always going against the grain. Um, and they have all, you know, timing is everything, even with outlandish theories of conference realignment. It's like, oh, Iowa State would be a great pickup to the Big Ten. It's like, what? (laughs) Like, this is not the conversation we would be having if this was three or four years ago, you know? It's just, I don't know. It it makes me more bitter than This rant is why I'm so upset that you are not more active on Twitter. I want to see this day (laughs) in and day out from you. (laughs) I don't have the, the mental endurance to deal with it, but, you know, I think it's more just bitterness that it almost feels like our 30 years of good football is has not really get, given us as much um, credence as it probably should have. Timing is everything, as we say. I will say this very quickly. The Holy War, Utah, BYU, that's being carried by ESPN. That could absolutely be the site for game day. ABC is as Washington at Michigan, two very big name programs. Now, granted, Washington ate the curb against Montana in their season opener, but still, that's those games are going to be far more intriguing and compelling to me than this. Again, this game, at some point, it will be 13 to 8. I don't know who's going to be winning, but it's just going to be an ugly crap game like it is every single season. And for those of you who like to throw down a couple of bucks here and there, I'm not that I'm suggesting uh, that's that you should, but Iowa plus four and a half, that is a very generous number if you want to hammer that line. As long, um, as long as it ends like it did the last time they played, where Iowa State ran into their own player returning a punt <laughs> to, to, to lose, you know, a turnover to lose the game. 
that would be, you know, as much as I respect Iowa State fans, like the uh, the admiration kind of disappears when all of a sudden they're winning more games than us. So, so to bring it back to the Big Twelve schedule for week number two, uh, again, your objectively good game, at least in our our humble opinion here, Texas taking on the Arkansas Razorbacks in Fayetteville, the 15th-ranked Longhorns. Again, seven-point favorites in that one. That game is a 6 o'clock kick on ESPN proper. And then you move into a game that's kind of a fringe, meh, good category. Uh, Ninth-ranked Iowa State, again, playing host to the 10th-ranked Iowa Hawkeyes, be it not for the rivalry component. I think that game has about as much sex appeal as another game that I feel falls into the meh category, which is TCU and Cal. That game's a 2.30 kick on ESPNU. And then also in the meh category is Oklahoma State, bright and early rooster kick hosting the Tulsa Golden Hurricane. So that's an 11 o'clock kickoff from Boone Pickens Stadium. You could catch that one on Fox Sports 1. Once we get past the, that tier, we got a whole mess of body bag games. So we'll glance through at those very quickly here. West Virginia at home looking to get right against Long Island University. That's a four o'clock kick and you can catch that on the ESPN plus app. Same for these next couple of contests, Baylor and Texas Southern, that game being played at McLean stadium in Waco. That's a six o'clock kick again on ESPN plus and then Texas tech playing host to Stephen F. Austin, another six o'clock kick on the ESPN Plus app. For those of you who will not be going out to Bill Snyder Family Stadium, again, you can stream that game at 6 o'clock on the ESPN Plus app. And just a couple more to round out the slate for week number two. The Kansas Jayhawks going on the road to take on Coastal Carolina. This is the return game after Coastal handed KU its ass last year. Jayhawks making the return trip back to take on the Chanticleers. Coastal opened up as a 27-point favorite in this game. Now, for context, Coastal Carolina just started playing football in 2003. They have only been playing FBS-level football since 2016, and yet they are nearly a four-touchdown favorite over a program that has been playing for well over a century and is continuing to cash P5 checks. It's a damn shame, but... I imagine that Lance Leipold and company will come back down to earth following that three-point win, and that will happen very quickly. That game is going to take place on Friday night. That's 6.30 kick on ESPN2 if you want to watch that one. And then the final game of the Big 12 slate in the body bag category here, Western Carolina going on the road to take on the Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, now, Jeff, I do uh, I do want to throw out that that Western Carolina OU tilt will be available on pay-per-view because in the year much? 2021, pay-per-view is still an option to watch major college football. And if you want to throw down a couple of bucks to watch it, it'll cost you $55. You know, Good. just for what it's worth, I hear pay-per-view and my head goes to like WrestleMania. So, mm. you know, do what you will with that. Well, your head's certainly in the right place because I can I can recall one game I feel about 90% confident was on pay-per-view was the K-State KU game in 2001, and then one game I'm about 60 to 70% confident was the 2004 K-State Nebraska game. Again, gun to the head, I would not bet my life on it, but I feel pretty confident in saying both of those contests were available on pay-per-view. Excuse me, but. 
Yeah. You know, Oklahoma's got to rake in some money to pay for that uh, Big 12 conference exit fee. So if Castiglione's got to gouge his own fans 55 bucks a head to watch Oklahoma beat the crap out of a less than stellar FCS squad, uh, that's his journey. Do what you got to do, I suppose. But I feel like this is an appropriate time to go ahead and wrap up. Before we do conclude, I got to throw it over to Clint here and let him provide our dedicated listeners with a summary of the K-State fantasy team's results from week number one. Clint, if you want to go ahead and describe in great detail how badly I beat Nutter, feel free to do so now. We had uh, Alex versus myself. I came away with a 10-point victory. Sorry, Alex. Then Jeff and Justin, you guys had a pretty good matchup. Jeff pulled away 50-44 to on the back of Deuce Vaughn and Khalid Duke. Justin had Cody Fletcher, the leading scorer of all the players, 26.5, but he uh, left Eli Huggins on the bench. That was How pretty about slick, my but... roster management, guys? How about it? <laughs> yeah, in hindsight. Whether it's Yahoo or ESPN that's doing it for you, you're still coming out on the short end. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, in hindsight, it would have been best to go linebacker, linebacker as your top two picks. Well, this, this Stanford game, I think – Probably gave us a few extra points just from their uh, the way they run their offense. It might not be like that all year long. With Daniel Green on the bench Skyler for the first half, I, if Fletcher wanted to pad his stats in the first half, I'd be all right with it. Yeah, I might need to trade for Nick Allen, Alex. How <laughs> many not have been my first trade on, prediction. How many points did I lose on uh, that interception? I forget. Two. Two? Mm-hmm. And did he get – was it just total rushing yards or did he get – Sacks, um, sacks would have been included. That was deducted per sack. How much was that? Uh, that was probably around another because it was probably like twenty yards, somewhere around there. So that would have been another two points. So it was just according to the rushing yards. It wasn't like I got you know negative three per sack or something. Correct. Clearly, I have looked over the scoring system quite extensively. Uh huh. I feel like Skyler should have gotten more points with two rushing touchdowns well you know maybe maybe some style points for that truck yeah that i mean that's the way the the league was set up to kind of lessen the uh, quarterback points oh i know before i even looked at the score i kind of assumed i was winning handily because of you know not really looking at the just knowing i had the quarterback and two rushing touchdowns i was like oh i'm probably probably winning pretty good and then well, as soon as Russ Yeast had that interception, I thought I was done for. But then I had uh, T.J. Yeah. Smith get an interception of his own. I have a question. How did Russ Yeast get – I don't know if this is the final stat thing, but I saw on, I think, ESPN that he got negative two yards on that interception return. Yeah, I had to go back and rewatch that because he definitely got tackled right away without running backwards. Yeah, I don't know how he would have gotten any negative yardage on that return. But that's neither here nor there. It's so week one yards. in books, Negative. like I said, Clint's going to be posting results so y'all can follow along on Twitter as we go through that. We're also going to be keeping track of our weekly award winners as well. Uh, again, we're expecting Deuce Vaughn, Skylar Thompson, and plenty of others to be repeat offenders in that column and looking forward to see who comes out with some distinctions following 
what should be a week two victory for the Wildcats. Very much looking forward to watching this one as K-State gets ready to take on Southern Illinois again. Six o'clock on Saturday at Bill Snyder Family Stadium. Uh, For those of you who are planning on attending, please, for the love of God, hydrate. Do not, again, go visit Alex in the ER. Um, If you do get there early, I know they're doing a a dedication, a groundbreaking ceremony for the Shamrock Zone. So if you want to check that out, you can. They're also doing a team walk-up. Now, this is little bit of flashback for me because i know this was something that ron prince wanted to enact (laughs) and nutter you're nodding your head at me you must remember this too (laughs) yeah i was a member of the marching band at the time they called it wildcat walk uh yet another of uh, ron prince's brain children then you know too busy cooking those up to bother to win any games yeah unless it was against the university of texas ron was pretty indifferent about consistently winning football games but That's neither here nor there. That time has come and gone. It is a new era of Kansas State football. And if you do want to get out and greet the guys on their way to the stadium, I know that might not necessarily be for you, but if you do have younger kids, I'm sure they would get a a kick out of it. The team bus is planning on arriving at 3.30 Saturday afternoon. They'll be going and the players will be walking down that main aisle on the west side as they get ready to head to the locker room. So just something to keep in your back pocket if you do plan on going out and doing a little bit of tailgating before kickoff. So with all that said, we thank you guys as always for listening to us. Please download, subscribe, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We're all blue chips here, so five stars, please. If you haven't already, as we said at the outset of the show, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. It's college underscore Kimball, and you'll find each of our individual Twitter accounts linked out on the main page there. And we'll wrap it up the way that we always do each and every week. Cats, man. If you know, you know.